everyone, and welcome to Classic Gaming Today, where we take a look at the gaming experiences of the past through the eyes of the present. I'm your host, Tony, and today we're going to look at Unreal, a first-person shooter developed by Epic Mega Games and Digital Extremes and published by GT Interactive for Microsoft Windows in May of 1998, with a port to Mac OS following later that same year. We're going to talk about that game in just a couple minutes, but first, as is usual, just a little bit of housekeeping up front. This is episode number 52. I am excited to be here. I hope all of you are as well. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing, provide feedback, comments, suggestions, or just talk about classic games and technology in general. I would love to hear from you, and there are a few ways you could reach out. I have an email address, which is classicgamingtoday at gmail.com. I have a Twitter account with the handle at classicgamingt, and I have a Discord server. The link is in the show notes. Discord is the best way to get in touch with me and the rest of the podcast community. We have a ton of fun out on Discord. We just completed our latest weekend gaming challenge. This was all focused on games with an isometric perspective. We had a bunch of different games out there. I do want to talk about this challenge just a little bit because... It was kind of interesting. So there were two primary people that participated this weekend in the challenge. There was Rich Senewald and ISO. ISO did end up getting all 11 points. So kudos to ISO. Although I will say that I believe the challenge associated with Little Big Adventure may have broken him permanently. Send your thoughts, prayers, and hugs to ISO because I think after that Little Big Adventure adventure, he may never be the same. Rich Senewald, by contrast, he's actually a big Little Big Adventure. I'm using little and big. Anyway, he's a Little Big Adventure fan, and he just waltzed right through the challenge. I think he posted that thing within like a couple hours of me posting the challenge. He was like, oh, look, I did it. So he didn't have many issues. ISO, I think he he is a little dead inside at this point. I'm sorry, ISO, but it was a fun challenge nonetheless. So ISO got a full 11 points for this weekend. That brings his total up to 32. He remains in the lead. Rich Senewald remains in second place. He got seven points this past weekend, so his point total is 23. And then the rest of the leaderboard remains the same. Bookie Gnu with 11 points is in third place. Blue Fates in fourth place with six points. Left-handed Guitarist with four points. That's fifth place. And I am the Dizzle with two points. Our first season of the Weekend Gaming Challenge lasts through the very beginning of October. It ends October 1st. So if you want to get on that leaderboard and have a chance at prizes, not just prizes for the overall winner, by the way. So if you want to get involved with that, Discord is the place to be. I should also mention that we have a Patreon. That is patreon.com slash classic gaming today. I host a new podcast that's Patreon exclusive every other week. We have four episodes out there so far. Fifth episode is going to be coming out in a little bit over a week or so. You also get special roles in Discord, a special Patreon only channel out on Discord. So there's a lot of good stuff out there, as well as Patreon exclusive blog posts. So if you do feel interested in getting a little bit more classic gaming today content, go out to patreon.com slash classic gaming today. I also want to give a shout out to our Pantheon patrons. They are ISO, Rich Senewald, and David Morton. Thank you guys for supporting the show. Thank you all for supporting the show and listening to it on a regular basis. I truly do appreciate it. I'm having a blast. I hope all of you are as well. For anyone who may be new, welcome. I just want to give a brief overview of the anatomy of an episode because for the most part, all of our episodes follow a very similar format and structure. 
We will always start by talking about the history of the game in question, the historical context. Where does it sit in the overall history of video and computer games? And then we move into a pseudo-review kind of section. And I say pseudo-review because it's not like we assign a numerical ranking or star ratings or anything like that. But we do look at every single game from several different perspectives. We take a look at the graphics. How does the game look? The sound and music. How does the game sound? The narrative and or story, if the game has one. Playability and controls and overall feel. What does it feel like to play the game today versus when it was released 20, 30, maybe even 40 plus years ago? And we do all of that to reach a verdict as far as how well the game holds up today. And to do that, we assign each game to one of several categories. At the very top of our list is the Pantheon of Classic Gaming. If a game reaches the Pantheon, you know it is that darn good. It is a certifiable classic, hasn't really aged at all. Highly encourage you to play these games. Just beyond the Pantheon are our Golden Oldies. These are still really good games. I still highly recommend you play them, especially if you've enjoyed the game in the past or you enjoy the genre in which the game lives. Absolutely give it a go. Definitely still worth your time. They're not quite Pantheon level, just a little bit below that Pantheon, but they are still really worthwhile experiences to play today. Beyond the Golden Oldies, we reach our Mediocre Mentions. This is where we start getting into the realm of games that I cannot recommend to the broad population. You could still have a good time, especially if you really enjoy the genre that the game exists in, but otherwise, anybody who may not have that degree of enjoyment, you may want to steer clear of these games have either aged a bit, may have had a couple of issues to begin with, I just can't recommend them broadly to the general game-playing population. And then beyond our mediocre mentions, we reach the footnotes. These are the games that are best left in the annals of history. I have played them, so you don't have to. I cannot recommend anyone play these titles today. They have either aged incredibly poorly, or they may not have been all that great to begin with. With that out of the way, we're going to start talking about the game of the day. That is Unreal. Unreal is a first-person shooter developed by Epic Mega Games and Digital Extremes and published by GT Interactive for Microsoft Windows back in 1998 with a port to Mac OS following a little bit later in 1998. Before we can talk about Unreal, we've got to take a look back into the history of Epic Mega Games itself. Along the way, we'll meet a number of different game designers, we'll learn about some of Epic's early game releases, and we'll also touch on the technology that ultimately powered Unreal, and would eventually evolve into one of the most powerful and widely used game engines in the world. Our story, though, doesn't begin with Epic Mega Games. Instead, we're going to start by talking about a small computer consulting company called Potomac Computer Systems. Potomac Computer Systems was founded in 1991 by a mechanical engineering student by the name of Tim Sweeney. 
Sweeney was not always interested in computers, but he was, from a very early age, interested in understanding how things worked. And that curiosity led Sweeney to perform a variety of experiments to learn the mechanics behind various machines that most people just took for granted. And one story that he had relayed was about when he was just five years old, he disassembled and reassembled his family's lawnmower just to figure out how the contraption actually functioned. Now, personally, I thought I deserved Mechanic of the Year honors when I figured out how to fix the wheel on my lawnmower just this past year as a 42-year-old, fully-grown man. But apparently, that would have been child's play, literally, for Tim Sweeney. So Sweeney continued his mechanical exploits until one day in the late 1970s when he discovered the magic of arcades, which had been steadily growing in popularity throughout the decade. Sweeney immediately became intrigued by the concept of arcade machines, and it didn't take long for him to realize that they shared many similarities to the mechanical contraptions that he was so fond of taking apart. While arcade games were more focused on the digital world as opposed to the physical, the core concept was similar in many ways to making a machine function. In a typical mechanical device, some designer or engineer has to figure out how to make a number of disparate parts, like gears, motors, and rods, function together with some degree of logic and precision. Sweeney figured that arcade games were kind of the same thing, except instead of a bunch of gears spinning together, arcade games were put together by programmers using digital logic to make something happen on the screen. It may not have been quite as tangible as a machine part, but it interested Sweeney nonetheless. Now, surprisingly, Sweeney's interest was mostly in figuring out how games worked rather than actually playing the games himself. He actually wasn't much of a gamer outside of the Atari 2600 release of Adventure, which was effectively a graphical version of the 1977 pretty much grandfather of the adventure game genre, Colossal Cave Adventure. What Sweeney did have an interest in, though, was learning how to create games, and he would spend countless hours over the course of his preteen and teenage years teaching himself how to code, using a variety of computer platforms, like the IBM PC, the Commodore 64, and perhaps most influentially for Sweeney, the Apple II, which was one of the most popular computers for video game development around this time. Sweeney would end up completing several games before he even got to college, though none of them would actually be released for sale. Effectively, Sweeney was just learning, with any games he created serving as experiments to help hone his development skills. Sweeney would eventually decide to go to college to major in mechanical engineering, which makes perfect sense given his lifelong interest in machines, though despite that very physical major, Sweeney still had significant interest in the digital world of computers, so much so that he would eventually create a company, Potomac Computer Systems, with the intent of doing some consulting work in between classes and during nights and weekends. Ultimately, though, he decided that it would be a bit too much work keeping the company in business, so he decided to shelve the concept of providing computer consultation services. What Sweeney didn't shelve, though, was his continued interest in the creation of video games, and he decided that rather than help people work on computers— he would instead begin developing games to be sold on the market. He figured that his time for hobbyist programming was over. Sweeney was ready to create a commercial video game. But first, he had to conquer a much less exciting issue. How to create a Pascal text editor that he would actually want to use. So before we continue, let's take a step back and talk about computer programming and development environments in the late 80s and early 90s. 
Nowadays, when someone thinks of programming a piece of software, especially a game, they're likely going to end up using one of the ready-made engines that are pervasive across the industry, like Unity or, spoiler alert, the Unreal Engine. These engines often come with built-in programming and development environments, and the act of creating a game is usually done using an Integrated Development Environment, or IDE, which these engines provide. Another popular IDE, by the way, that you might have heard of is Visual Studio, which is Microsoft's suite for software development. Back in the late 80s, though, things weren't nearly as sophisticated, and oftentimes, in order for a game to be created, the software developer would have to code his or her own engine from scratch. Now, there was some effort around this time to create platform-agnostic engines that could be reused for multiple games, and we actually just talked about one, the Scum Adventure Game Engine, during our last episode focused on The Secret of Monkey Island. But it wasn't like a ton of engine licensing was happening. A company might develop an engine for their internal use, but they weren't really going to allow other companies to use their technology, even if it was under the auspices of a paid license. Compounding the issue was the fact that development tools were pretty primitive in the late 80s, and Sweeney noticed this pretty quickly when he sat down to begin using his IBM PC's version of Pascal, which was a fairly common programming language, by the way, around this time. Sweeney did not like the Pascal text editor that came with his current machine, instead longing for the Pascal environment that he had previously used on his Apple II. He knew, though, that he couldn't simply install Apple II software on an IBM PC. So he did the only thing that someone with a strong development skill set could do in that kind of situation. He decided to write his own editor. So Sweeney began coding his personalized text editor. But along the way, something strange happened. Like we had mentioned, Sweeney's goal during this whole process was to eventually create a new game, one that could hopefully be sold on the market. Well, when Sweeney continued coding his new Pascal editor, he began to consider, what if the text editor he was creating could actually be used as a video game? Now, note, I said maybe his text editor could be used as a video game, not to create a game, but as the basis of a game itself. Intrigued by the idea, and recognizing that he didn't have any graphics or art skills himself, Sweeney decided to begin expanding on the concept of his Pascal text editor, with his focus shifting to creating a game similar in many ways to Atari's Adventure, which, like we had said, was one of the few games that Sweeney had enjoyed playing as a child. This new game would use text characters as the basis for the game world and characters, and would be designed in such a way that gamers could actually create their own worlds using the same development tools that Sweeney used to create the game in the first place. The game, named ZZT, would be Sweeney's first true released game, and even though it was an early work that had, by today's standards, fairly limited mechanics, and quite frankly even more limited graphics and sound, it would still become fairly popular, with Sweeney utilizing a shareware release model whereby players could get the first episode for free, but would then need to pay for the right to access any subsequent episodes of the title. Beyond its short-term popularity, the title would have a long-staying power. It actually remained available to purchase in a physical copy format, all the way through 2013, with Sweeney's father serving as the main distributor of the game ever since its original release. ZZT would prove Sweeney had what it took to be a professional game developer, and his early efforts would influence a number of gamers and future developers to come. 
In fact, ZZT's customization options were so extensive that a number of individuals become game developers themselves because of how ZZT was designed. And surprisingly, despite being released over 30 years ago, ZZT worlds and modifications continue to be released on the internet even today. Now, when Sweeney completed ZZT in 1991, he released it under his company's name, Potomac Computer Systems. It wouldn't take long, though, before he realized that a company named Potomac Computer Systems didn't really sound like a game development company, and likely it wouldn't be as appealing to gamers as other leading industry heavyweights with much more compelling names, like Apogee or id Software. So, Sweeney decided that a name change was in order. He wanted his new company moniker to represent amazing gaming experiences, while also sounding like it belonged to a large company with a significant number of employees on staff, even though at this point, Sweeney was really its only employee. He eventually decided on using a couple of superlatives to describe the gaming experiences he wanted to create for his customers, settling on the terms Epic and Mega. As a result of that decision, Potomac Computer Systems would officially end its existence as it became rechristened as Epic Mega Games. After Sweeney completed and released ZZT, he began thinking about the next game he wanted to work on. Believing that a game with high-quality graphics and sound would make more money than games styled similarly to ZZT's more rudimentary text-based visuals and gameplay, he decided that his next title would be much more similar to modern computer platform titles of the time, like Commander Keen and the original Duke Nukem. With that goal in mind, Sweeney sat down to begin working on his second commercial game, the multi-episode shareware title Jill of the Jungle. There was only one problem. Like we mentioned earlier, Sweeney had no graphical or art background, and even beyond that, he didn't really have the skills needed to effectively create art for a game. He was a talented developer, but the only reason he was able to create and release ZZT by himself was because it was an entirely text character-driven interface and game world. If he wanted to create a compelling visual platforming title like his contemporaries, he was going to need to include high-quality art with the title. He recognized that this was a deficit, so he decided to hire four more people to work on the title. And with that, Epic Mega Games stopped being a one-person operation and was now an actual full-fledged company. As Jill of the Jungle was being developed, Epic Mega Games continued to grow as a company, with Sweeney hiring more and more people until eventually running the business started to get prohibitively difficult. So he decided to hire a partner, someone who could help with the business side of things while he focused more on the technology, which is what led to hiring Mark Rain into the company. Longtime listeners might recall the name Mark Rain from our Commander Keen episode, as he was the Commander Keen fan who John Romero effectively made a provisional president at id Software, and he would ultimately be responsible for bringing various episodes of Commander Keen, as well as Wolfenstein 3D, to the retail market. When Sweeney met with Rain, he had just quit working at id Software and was looking for a new challenge. Sweeney's small company, Epic Mega Games, sounded like it'd be a perfect fit so Rain decided to join Sweeney to try to take Epic Mega Games to the next level. With Mark Rain helping on sales, publishing, and marketing, Sweeney was free to focus on making games and recruiting talent, and that's exactly what he ended up doing. After Jill of the Jungle released in 1992, Sweeney and Epic Mega Games would continue to expand, and a number of key events would happen that year that would change the trajectory of the company. 
To start, we need to take a detour and talk about three-dimensional technology back in 1992. In short, there wasn't much of it, and most games that utilized quote-unquote three-dimensional worlds and engines were really just using clever graphical tricks to create the illusion of three-dimensional spaces. Games like Wolfenstein 3D, while appearing to represent a three-dimensional world that you could actually walk through, were really composed of two-dimensional rooms and maps with flat surfaces projected and extended to surround the player, while objects that at a distance appeared to have depth were, in reality, just a series of flat sprites overlapped with one another. That's not to say that there weren't any 3D games around this time, but true three-dimensional experiences, meaning games that actually used three-dimensional objects as opposed to flat surfaces, were few and far between. One day in 1992, Tim Sweeney came across some impressive 3D demos from a Finnish development group who appeared to have figured out a way of creating realistic, fast-paced, three-dimensional visuals, at least as it relates to the much-beloved game of pinball, which was still an arcade staple around the early 90s. Sweeney was so impressed by the team's 3D pinball table prototype that he asked Mark Rain to travel to Finland in the hopes of hiring the development team into Epic Mega Games. Unfortunately for Sweeney and Rain, only one person, a man named Misko Iho, returned to the U.S. to begin discussions with Sweeney about joining the team. While those discussions ultimately didn't really play out the way that Sweeney wanted, at a minimum, he really wanted Iho to allow Epic Mega Games to complete the 3D pinball prototype, thinking that not only would it be an opportunity to learn more about three-dimensional graphics and programming techniques, but also he was convinced that the 3D pinball game could be a big seller, and he wanted Epic to be the company to own and publish that title. Despite Sweeney's best efforts, Iho refused every offer thrown at him, so Sweeney did the only thing that he could do. He took Iho's prototype pinball demo and he showed it to a talented college student by the name of James Schmalls and basically asked him, can you recreate something like this? Schmalls, being a cocky college coder, took on the assignment, and nine months later, he ended up creating the first set of Epic pinball tables, which would be released by Epic Mega Games as shareware in 1993. Now, that story might sound a bit underwhelming at first glance, but you have to consider that in creating Epic Pinball, Schmalls didn't have access to any source code or other assets from the finished 3D pinball prototype. All Schmalls had was a visual and a request to make something like it. He didn't even have a 3D engine. He didn't have any help at all. All he had was his ingenuity and a love for coding. And interestingly enough, that ended up being all he would need to create a game that would become incredibly successful. At this point, I need to take a step back because it strikes me that some of you may have never played Epic Pinball before, or you might be thinking that digital pinball machines couldn't possibly hold a candle to their mechanical counterparts. Well, let me tell you, Epic Pinball, and in particular, the Android Epic Pinball table, was by far one of the most fun experiences I had on a computer in the early 1990s. I had gotten the Android Pinball machine myself as shareware, and I played it incessantly for months on end. Now, I'm not a pinball guy. I mean, I enjoy pinball just fine, but it's not really my go-to experience. But Epic Pinball's Android table? That was something else, and I just absolutely loved it. 
It turns out that a lot of other people loved it too, because Epic Pinball would become the third highest selling shareware title of all time, and it would change the life of its creator, James Schmalz. Before Epic Pinball, Schmalz was making around $15,000 a year as a student dabbling in video game development. Not bad for the time, but not necessarily a gigantic salary. After Epic Pinball's release, though, Schmalz would increase his earnings to over $1 million in less than a year. It was, to put it mildly, incredibly successful. With that success, Schmalz decided that he wanted to expand more formally into the video game industry, so he decided to form his own company, Digital Extremes, to continue working on cutting-edge three-dimensional technology. Following the release of the first set of Epic Pinball Tables, Schmalls and Digital Extremes continued to make more pinball games, though they always had a knack for pushing the envelope as it came to three-dimensional development. Keep Digital Extremes in mind, because we are going to return to them in just a little bit. But first, we have to take another detour. While James Schmalls was creating one of the most popular shareware titles to ever be released, another high school student was dreaming of making it big in the video game industry. That high school student was none other than Cliff Blazinski. Cliff Blazinski, or Cliffy B as he would come to be known over the years, was a talented software developer who, even as a high school student, knew that he had the skills needed to become a professional game designer. In fact, he was so sure of himself that one day he decided to create a game entitled Dare to Dream with the sole intent of selling it to a major software publisher or possibly obtaining full-time employment at one of those companies. It didn't take long before Dare to Dream would make its way into Tim Sweeney's hands, primarily because, well, Blazinski sent it to him, and after checking out the game, Sweeney believed that Blazinski had real potential. Now, interestingly, Dare to Dream would end up being mostly a dud on the market, but as oftentimes happens, that was just enough of a foot in the door to grant Blazinski a new opportunity this time working directly for Epic Mega Games as the game designer for a new computer platforming title, one that would be designed to compete with the big platform console games of the time like Sonic the Hedgehog. That game would be called Jazz Jackrabbit. Jazz Jackrabbit would never quite reach the heights of its console platformer competition, but that doesn't mean that it wasn't a success in its own right, as the game would go on to redefine what was possible in a computer-based platforming title. And we actually looked a bit at this on prior episodes, the whole concept of computer platforming titles. But the fact is, computer platform titles were just not the same as platformers found on Nintendo or Sega home consoles. Computer game developers certainly tried to capture that magic, but they were mostly unsuccessful. Whereas on consoles, you had smooth, horizontal, and scrolling visuals, incredibly fast-paced gameplay, and controls that just felt, oh, so right... Most computer platformers were still trying to find their footing. Just as one example, even the concept of having smoothly scrolling horizontal levels was a relatively new capability on computers, with Commander Keen having finally cracked that code in late 1990. There were good computer platforming games, absolutely, but if you hold them up to their console counterparts, at least from my perspective, there just wasn't much for competition. Jazz Jackrabbit, though, would change all of that. And for me, Jazz Jackrabbit was one of the first computer platformers to actually come close to matching console-quality platforming action. The gameplay was fast and fluid, the visuals were high-quality and colorful, and the music was punchy and meshed well with the action on the screen. 
In fact, the goal behind Jazz Jackrabbit was to create a competitor for games like Sonic the Hedgehog. And if you end up playing it, or even just watching a gameplay video, I think you'll pretty clearly see the inspiration. Even though Jazz Jackrabbit wouldn't be nearly as successful as Sonic, it still was a quality experience, and it was certainly proof that Cliff Blazinski understood how to design a high-quality game. Now, let's fast forward a year or two. At this point, we have James Schmalls and Digital Extremes, who had been working on three-dimensional graphics for a couple years, primarily focused on using that technology to bring digital pinball titles to life. You also had Cliff Blazinski, who was quickly proving himself to be an incredibly talented game designer, as demonstrated by his work on Jazz Jackrabbit. And you had Tim Sweeney, a genius-level software developer who, after the release of Jill of the Jungle, had sort of slowed down developing new titles himself, focusing instead to grow Epic Mega Games' talent pipeline to bring on top-flight talented game developers and designers to increase the company's stable of games. You might be thinking to yourself, it feels like Epic Mega Games is at the cusp of creating something revolutionary. With all of these individual pieces... Maybe the time is right to combine forces, to possibly create an experience that would incorporate everyone's individual strengths into a targeted, truly epic mega game. You see what I did there? Sorry. Anyway, that opportunity would eventually present itself in 1995, as James Schmalls, fresh off of making a ton of profit from Epic Pinball and its related pinball table packs, sat down to continue his exploration into the creation of three-dimensional worlds. Around this time, games were just beginning to really toy with the idea of fully realized three-dimensional worlds, and Schmalls and his Digital Extremes team didn't want to be left behind. So he began to create some very rudimentary prototype three-dimensional worlds, focusing first on how to generate enclosed organic 3D spaces like caverns, and then expanding that prototype to include outdoor planes, characters, and creatures made entirely out of polygons. Schmalls continued to develop his prototype, adding buildings and other objects into the game world, until finally he had the start of something that he thought could be the foundation of a new, unique three-dimensional experience. The only thing was, while Schmalls was really good at 3D graphics and the general concepts behind game design, he wasn't really as focused on creating any sort of tools that could make the process of creating a game easier. Even the act of creating the objects in his prototype were done pretty much entirely by hand, mapping locations and characters out on paper before creating them as a digital representation in his working prototype. He was beginning to build something compelling, but at his current pace, he would never be able to fully develop his concepts into an actual game. Luckily for Schmalls, Tim Sweeney was in fact really good at creating game frameworks, tools, and engines. Recall that Sweeney's first commercial game, ZZT, was effectively a text character-based game development engine itself. When Sweeney saw the work Schmalls was doing in creating his three-dimensional spaces, his first thought was, this looks really interesting. And then his second thought was that Schmalls was basically building his prototype using Stone Age technology, meaning he didn't have any tools, editors, applications, or anything else that could make his life easier and make the act of designing and creating a world simpler. So, Sweeney decided to change that, creating a simple editor that Schmalls could use to edit and create other objects and scenes in the game world more easily, with Sweeney sitting down to begin developing an actual full-fledged engine that could, potentially, serve as the foundation for a future 3D-based title. Here, though, Schmalls once again faced a bit of an issue. 
designing a three-dimensional game world with this kind of scope and breadth was going to be really challenging. His experience up to this point had been squarely on pinball table design, which I don't mean to suggest is easy, but it is certainly more straightforward than designing a large-scale three-dimensional world with various creatures to inhabit it, locations to explore, and obstacles to traverse. Schmalz was great at visualizing a three-dimensional space, and Sweeney was great at coding a game's framework. What they needed, though, was a rockstar game designer, someone who could combine the technology the two of them were working on with a vision for an integrated set of mechanics and gameplay experiences. Luckily for them, they had someone who fit the bill right in their office, and it wouldn't take long before Cliff Blazinski, who was still in high school at this point, joined the team. Anyway, with the combined talents of Sweeney, Schmalls, and Blazinski, there was recognition that they might just be able to create something truly special. While they'd have to continue to flesh out some more ideas, it would be this teaming that would pave the way for the eventual creation of the first-person shooter classic, Unreal. Excitement inside the team was palpable, but there was also a sense of anxiety. Up to this point, Epic Mega Games was fairly well known for the games they had released, but the fact is that the scope of their projects had been relatively limited. Sure, you had some quality platforming titles, and their Epic Pinball series was insanely popular, but you didn't have a true gaming industry breakthrough. Certainly not to the extent as some other popular software developers of the time, like id Software with their relatively recent release, Doom. The team at Epic Mega Games wanted to release something truly revolutionary. They wanted to be spoken of in the same breadth as other contemporary big-name development teams. They just needed to create a game that would allow that to happen. While Sweeney went off to figure out how he was going to design a toolset and game framework to make this new game a reality, Schmalz and Blazinski began brainstorming concepts for the game. Early on, the thought was that this game would be centered on some sort of flight mechanic, allowing players to explore environments by riding a magic carpet through a 3D world, which, by the way, sounds awfully similar to the just-released bullfrog game Magic Carpet. It didn't take long, though, before Schmalz and Blazinski changed that overall vision, deciding instead that they wanted to create more of a medieval-feeling first-person shooter kind of experience. There was just one problem with that. They wanted to create a medieval-feeling first-person shooter, and the last I checked, the medieval era of history was not exactly known for their firearms. Schmalz, though, came up with a great idea. What if the game involved the player exploring an unknown alien environment? players would be able to discover the world of a civilization that was entirely foreign to them. And because that civilization and world wasn't based in reality, that gave the game's designers and developers the freedom to add in whatever elements they wanted to. In this instance, that meant combining medieval structures like castles with futuristic weaponry like plasma and energy rifles. The possibilities were endless. While Schmalz and Blazinski started designing the overall title, Tim Sweeney was faced with an almost bigger challenge. How could he create a framework or engine for a game that was being designed as a massive, truly three-dimensional first-person shooter, set not just in confined spaces like spaceships and tunnel systems, but also with the ability to display realistic outdoor vistas and environments? First-person shooter game worlds up to this point had been focused on fast-paced, frantic gameplay that, for the most part, took place in corridors or, at best, arenas. There weren't really many first-person shooters that allowed for exploration of outdoor spaces, and for good reason. For any long-time listeners, 
You may recall our discussion on Wolfenstein 3D and Doom, id Software's early first-person shooters that basically created an entire genre. One of the key focus areas during the development of those games was how to maintain performance on computers of the time, as John Carmack, the rockstar programmer behind both titles, wanted the experiences to be smooth and fast. To do that, he employed a number of programming tricks to minimize the number of calculations that a computer needed to process at any point in time, and one of the core ways he did that was making sure that the computer only really cared about what the player could see, as opposed to the environment around them. Because of early first-person shooter design being focused on enclosed environments, the task of figuring out what a player could see and optimizing graphical performance was challenging, but manageable. The moment you take that environment and expand it to wide open spaces, the challenge becomes significantly more complex, and that was just one of the many problems Sweeney would have to solve as he sat down to develop what would eventually become the first iteration of the Unreal Engine. The overall goals for the engine were incredibly high, and Sweeney knew that if Epic Mega Games was going to compete with John Carmack and id Software, he would need to create a technical masterpiece, an engine that would leapfrog current efforts and wow players with effects never before seen in a computer or video game. Things like advanced lighting, realistic fog, detailed skies and environments, and complex three-dimensional geometry were all features Sweeney would eventually fold into the engine, all of which would serve to make the game look better than pretty much anything else that had come before it. There are two features, though, that I want to spend just a little bit of time diving deeper into, and we're going to start by talking about colors. Now, you might be thinking, oh boy, colors, sounds really exciting, and normally I would probably agree with you, but in this case, it's actually pretty darn interesting. So let's take a step back and once again talk about the concept of graphical bits in video gaming. Typically, the concept of bits, whether that's 8-bit, 16-bit, 32-bit, or whatever, are associated with gaming consoles. And we've talked about a ton of different games and technologies over various episodes that dive deep into the graphics on those consoles. For the purposes of this discussion, we'll talk about the Super Nintendo Entertainment System, or SNES. The SNES was Nintendo's 16-bit console, and was designed to compete with Sega's 16-bit console, the Genesis. Now, in this context, the concept of 16 bits means that the overall color palette available to game developers for use in their games was limited to 16 bits of colors, which means that when a developer sat down to create a Super Nintendo title, they could choose from 32,768 possible colors to create their graphics. But most, if not all, 16-bit consoles were limited to only displaying 256 colors at any point in time. So, while they had an extensive palette available to choose from, it's not like all of those colors would be available to use in a single scene in a game. The same limitations around simultaneous colors were also present on computers, as current state-of-the-art computer graphics were centered on that same 256 colors at a time kind of paradigm. Sweeney, as he was designing the Unreal Engine, decided that the time was right to propel graphics technology forward, so he designed an engine that could display graphics using all of the available colors in the 16-bit color space. Meaning, the number of colors on a screen at any point in time increased to 128 times what was available previously. 
this was a significant, significant upgrade from prior graphics engines and would provide a level of detail that literally couldn't be matched by any other game on the market. The second key feature of the engine that I want to dive a little bit deeper into involves the concept of detail texturing. Recall our discussion from a few minutes ago when we were talking about the challenges of creating wide-open large environments and how our graphics engine could possibly maintain a sense of speed and performance while dealing with that complexity. Well, one of the ways to do that would be to change the level of detail of a given environment or object depending on how close a player was to that object, and this is where the concept of detail texturing comes in. The Unreal Engine would be one of the earliest examples of this technology being used in a game, and it basically involved having multiple sets of textures for various objects in the game. One set of textures would be used when a player was further away from the object, because you don't necessarily need a ton of detail when you're not close to something. Think about even the real world. Our ability to see the details on objects fades the farther away it is from us, so it's only natural that far-off objects in a game world wouldn't need to be fully detailed. The closer we get to something, however, the more detailed it becomes, and that's exactly what detail texturing is. As a player would approach certain objects, the engine would automatically substitute a higher quality texture, allowing a greater degree of detail to be shown to the player. This allowed the engine to optimize performance, not wasting time on processing higher quality graphics until it was absolutely necessary to do so. To say Sweeney was creating something groundbreaking would be an understatement, and even John Carmack offered praise when he saw what Sweeney was able to accomplish. While Carmack and Sweeney were effectively competitors, there was still a lot of respect between the two of them. Sweeney had recognized that Carmack basically created an entire genre, and Carmack recognized that Sweeney was the guy that was going to push it into the future. With the Unreal Engine starting to take shape, attention turned to how to actually create the game that would end up using the engine, and here Sweeney made some significant innovations as well. In many first-person shooters around this time, the act of creating maps and level geometry was accomplished using a standalone map editing program. Map designers would go into their map editing tool of choice, begin constructing a level, and would then have to save and compile the map before they could actually test it, which involved shutting down their map editing program and firing up the game they were designing for. If someone made a mistake back then, well, they'd have to shut down the game, reopen their map editor, correct whatever the issue was, recompile the map, and then go back into the game to test it. If that sounds just a bit cumbersome, it's because it was, and the act of map creation was cumbersome and prone to constant iteration, not because of the drive to improve levels, but simply due to issues that wouldn't surface until you actually tried the map in-game. To address this issue, Sweeney designed the Unreal Engine and surrounding tool suite in such a way that designers could edit their levels on the fly, seeing and experiencing those changes right in the editor itself, which served to streamline the whole design process much more than what had been possible in the past. Accompanying that editing software was a custom scripting language called Unreal Script, which allowed designers the ability to create various events, effects, and gameplay mechanics, all without having to leave the underlying development environment that Sweeney had created. This degree of integration was dramatically more efficient than what other game engines provided, and was yet another way that Sweeney was working to drive innovation into the industry. Turning our attention to music, Unreal was once again attempting to do something just a little bit different than its contemporaries. 
Around this time, most games offered soundtracks that were either synthesis-based, using files based on MIDI or musical instrument digital interface technology, or were based on CD audio, as CD-ROM drives were beginning to become more prevalent across the computer industry. For Unreal, the team decided to do something different, utilizing a technology called Module Music, which Epic Mega Games had used in their prior games as well. Rather than being synthesis-based, Mod Music utilizes stored instrument samples as the basis for its audio, with composers able to combine those samples into various patterns using software called trackers. The resulting music files oftentimes sounded higher quality than MIDI-based synthesis, while being much more flexible to edit and alter, as well as taking up much less storage space than pre-recorded CD audio. It was basically the best of both worlds, with the editability of MIDI and the quality of CD audio. So, all of this new technology sounds pretty great, but the fact is, this degree of change and technological advancement did not come without issues. For one, trying to design the game while the engine and toolset was constantly changing would prove to be challenging, as there was so much experimentation going on that it would be difficult to keep up without having to do a ton of rework every time a new feature was added or a pre-existing feature was tweaked. Beyond that, the state of the industry was in the process of changing as well, with a shift to 3D accelerators happening while Unreal was in the process of being created. This meant that an engine that used software rendering exclusively, as was the standard in 1995 when development started, needed to be constantly refined to add in 3D acceleration support in order to really meet the goal of being one of the most advanced 3D games on the market. Even more challenging was trying to create a game as big as what Sweeney, Schmalz, and Blazinski intended with a relatively small team. With such a huge leap in technology came a similar leap in scope, and the current Epic Mega Games team was just too small to keep up with expected milestones and projected release dates. So, Epic Mega Games went through yet another expansion, with the company looking to hire potential designers, developers, and artists from across the world, oftentimes seeking out individuals who had worked on other first-person shooters, either professionally or as prior mod makers for those games. That allowed the team to expand significantly, which was an absolute necessity, but it also came with its own challenges, as Epic attempted to work as a distributed virtual team. Nowadays, we take virtual teaming for granted, as the tools and technologies are in place to allow people to work on a single project from literally anywhere in the world. Back in the mid-90s, though, that degree of virtual collaboration was much more challenging, with various delays continuing to occur due to the distributed nature of the team. So, in 1997, a decision was made to relocate the entire team to Digital Extreme's headquarters in Canada for the remainder of Unreal's development cycle. This began a period of intense crunch, whereby the team spent upwards of 18 hours a day working exclusively on the title. This crunch, while unfortunate, was also being looked at as unavoidable, as the game had already missed several publicized release dates, and even though gamers around the world were excited by the game, there were a number of people who began believing that Epic's forthcoming first-person shooter was never going to be released, with more than a few calling the title Vaporware. The fact is, Mark Rain's marketing and advertising had been just a bit too good, and the team's internal progress was just a bit too slow. Those two things combined to create a volatile situation, one which the development team could only address by fully dedicating themselves to the completion of the game. 
Eventually, after almost a year of 18-plus hour days, Unreal would finally release to the world in May of 1998. The team believed they had done something truly special, but there was still some anxiety. What if, despite their effort, gamers didn't like the game? It turns out they didn't have to worry about that for too long, as gamers and critics around the world would end up loving Unreal, with pretty much everyone praising the game's state-of-the-art visuals, world-building, and overall design as being more advanced than nearly every game that had come before it, and it would end up selling over 1.5 million copies in the couple years that followed its release, while being named to a number of best games of all time lists. Sweeney, Schmalz, Blazinski, and the rest of the Epic Mega Games team had succeeded in delivering a true industry-changing hit. Unreal was the new standard in first-person shooters. With Unreal out in the wild, gamers and talented amateur designers would flock to the title. And luckily for everyone, Epic Mega Games decided to release Unreal's editing tools to the public, allowing anyone the ability to develop modifications to the game as well as create their own maps. The Unreal Engine, along with the Unreal Script scripting language, made it easy to bend the game to a designer's will, or at least easier than most editors of the time, and this ease of use is one of the main reasons that there was, and remains, such a vibrant map and modding community around the title. Beyond community contributions, Unreal would evolve to include an expansion, several spin-offs, most notably the Unreal Tournament game series, and a full-fledged sequel though its true legacy lies in its underlying technology. The Unreal Engine would prove to be incredibly versatile, and it would quickly become one of the most widely licensed engines across the entire computer and video game industry. That engine would go through several iterations over the years, and remains incredibly relevant even today, as Unreal Engine 5 is one of the primary engines used to create modern-day titles for current computers and video game consoles like the PlayStation 5 and Xbox Series consoles. Epic Mega Games as a company would continue to evolve following Unreal's release, eventually becoming simply Epic Games, because, as Mark Rain put it, when Potomac Computer Systems became Epic Mega Games, Tim Sweeney was trying to create the illusion of a much larger company. After Unreal's success, there was no longer a need for illusion. Epic Games was a major industry player. Beyond the Unreal Engine, Epic Games would continue to deliver well-liked, impressive video and computer games, including the Gears of War series, which was designed by Cliff Blazinski, the Infinity Blade series, which was one of the first mobile titles to use nearly console-quality graphics, and, perhaps most popularly, Fortnite. Epic was also responsible for launching a digital computer game storefront to compete with Valve's Steam Marketplace, the Epic Games Store, which has garnered a significant amount of sales since its launch in 2018. Cliff Blazinski would ultimately leave Epic Games in 2012, before standing up his own game development studio, Boss Key Productions, in 2014. That company would only last a few years before it would be dissolved, and Blazinski today isn't really focused on game development. Instead, he's begun to produce a variety of plays, published a memoir, and released a brand new comic series just earlier this year. He may not still be in the gaming industry, but he has certainly kept himself busy. James Schmalls continues to be the CEO of Digital Extremes, and beyond Unreal, the company would be responsible for a number of other games over the years, with perhaps their most popular title being the multiplayer action game Warframe, which remains in active development even today. 
Mark Rain and Tim Sweeney are still currently high-ranking leaders within Epic Games, with Sweeney continuing to serve as the company's CEO. Despite his high-ranking status at the company, Sweeney continues to be involved in the development of Epic Games' technological innovations, including the Unreal Engine, which has gone on to be used in countless games, movies, and television productions, as well as other related media efforts. Sweeney himself has become one of the most prominent figures in the industry, and he has been awarded several Hall of Fame and Lifetime Achievement Awards by various organizations, both for his technological contributions as well as his philanthropic efforts outside of the video and computer game industry. Sweeney was hugely successful over the course of his career, and today has amassed a personal net worth of approximately $4.7 billion. The creation of Unreal represents a pivotal moment in computer game history. As the intersection of both technological advancement and new paradigms in game design, Epic Mega Games succeeded in delivering a blockbuster that took the industry by storm and created a title that would serve as a blueprint for future titles to follow. While the Unreal game series isn't quite talked about as much today as it was in the past, Unreal's legacy, as well as the legacy of the technology upon which the game was built, still remains incredibly relevant today. It's hard to imagine a world without Unreal or the Unreal Engine in it. And even today, Unreal remains a much-beloved classic first-person shooter that, for many gamers, will be remembered fondly forever. We are now going to shift to start talking about what it feels like to play Unreal today versus when it was released 25 years ago. So when you hear that Unreal is a first-person shooter, you might think, okay, cool, first-person shooter, check, not much to talk about. Well, actually, that's only partially true. Sure, Unreal includes all of the traditional aspects of the post-quake three-dimensional first-person shooter. Things like fully realized 3D environments, polygonal characters, mouse look, vertical navigation, and a number of weapons and power-ups. But looking at just those common features would be missing the special sauce, so to speak, that makes Unreal unique. From my perspective, the biggest distinguishing characteristic in Unreal is its level design, and in particular, the openness of a number of the game's levels. The game does a pretty good job of mixing up levels between the kinds of stages you'd see in a traditional first-person shooter, like more enclosed kinds of locations like caves, mines, and spaceships, and the very new, at least for 1998, wide-open outdoor stages with large explorable environments, including water, vegetation, indigenous creatures, and various buildings and landmarks. This level mix really contributed to the feeling that you were navigating a world rather than a collection of levels, and as you work your way through the game, each level naturally leads into the next, creating a sense of interconnection that was missing for many first-person shooters of the time. You don't ever 
see an end-of-level screen with stats, the number of secrets found, and stuff like that. This wasn't a first-person shooter focused on players getting the top score or completing levels the fastest. This was a game focused on exploration. And let me tell you, the act of exploration in Unreal is a joy to behold. Some of my favorite parts of the game were the quiet moments in between combat where you may encounter an uninhabited home or a serene grotto with nearby animals traipsing about, and you can truly bask at the environmental design in the game. This was very much unlike the more traditional arena-based shooters of the time, and it was a welcome change of pace when it first released and remains unique even today. That being said, the game does contain its fair share of combat, and as you work your way through 39 levels of action and exploration, you'll encounter a variety of enemies, all of whom want nothing more than to defeat you and continue enslaving the alien race who once called Unreal's planet their home. Your mission, of course, is to figure out what's going on and escape to safety. Along the way, you'll find a variety of different weapons to assist you on your quest, each of which has both a primary and secondary firing mode. Your weapons run the gamut between a rechargeable and upgradable dispersion pistol, which is your default weapon in the game, to railguns, to grenade launchers, to sniper rifles, to my personal favorite, the flak cannon. There are 10 different weapons available in the game, all of which are unique in design and serve different purposes depending on the situation you find yourself in. As an example, if you're fighting a close-range battle, the flat cannon is the way to go, since it's effectively a shotgun with bouncing shrapnel that will make short work of nearly any normal foe in the game. See someone off in the distance? Switch to your sniper rifle and try to get a headshot before anyone even notices. Each gun is useful in their own way, though I do have some comments about the actual shooting mechanics in the game, which we're going to talk about in just a little bit. As you progress through the game, you'll learn tidbits of story through various logs that you find in the game world, and you can use a translation device to decipher these messages into readable text. The translation device is just one of a variety of items that you can carry around in your inventory, each of which can be activated or deactivated as needed. These items include typical first-person shooter staples like flashlights, scuba gear, and jump boots, to less typical kinds of items like an amplifier that can improve a weapon's power and a voice box that can provide a sound-based distraction. Now, interestingly, some items are effectively useless in the single-player game, as enemy artificial intelligence doesn't actually detect sounds. In multiplayer, though, those items are much more effective. And speaking of multiplayer, as is often the case, I didn't have an opportunity to actually try the multiplayer for this episode of the podcast, so I don't know exactly what that scene looks like today. I can say, though, that based on some internet searching, it sounds like the fan community has continued to keep the game patched, and I can only assume that there's still a degree of multiplayer happening on player-run servers around the world. It is also worth mentioning, though, that Unreal, in its original implementation, had some pretty shoddy multiplayer performance, which would mostly be fixed with the release of Unreal Tournament and patched into the original with the release of Unreal Gold, which was pretty much just a Game of the Year edition kind of release that coupled the original Unreal with its expansion pack, Return to Nepali, and included some engine improvements. I also want to mention one aspect of the game that is less tangible, but is something that I felt pervaded nearly the entire experience, and that is Unreal is a game that simply oozes style. We can talk about the technical aspects of the design all day, or the 3D accelerated visuals, or the driving beats in the game soundtrack, but the piece that really stuck out to me 
was just how well the individual pieces came together into some really innovative sections of gameplay. And I'm going to relay my personal favorite sequence in the game that I think demonstrates how the game combines all of these different technical pieces of its design into something greater than the sum of its parts. Early on in the game, you encounter a section where you're exploring a fairly nondescript factory of sorts. You walk around this factory, and there's not really anything difficult here. You start exploring various passages and tunnels while you're trying to figure out the path forward. Well, at one point, you're walking down this hallway, and then suddenly, the game puts up a sort of blockade. The music fades out, and suddenly the overhead lights begin going off one by one, starting down the hall and eventually making their way to you. In this whole sequence, as the area begins to get darker and darker, Your sense of anticipation and dread increases. There is no way this is going to end well for you. Finally, the last light goes off, and you're trapped in a pitch-black tunnel. Suddenly, you hear the noise of some creatures close by, and a red light illuminates your surroundings as a thumping piece of music begins playing, after which you notice a couple of nasty bad guys that are charging right at you. Now, this one scene immediately enraptured me, and I walked away from that sequence saying, holy cow, this is phenomenal. I truly felt a sense of dread and terror, and the scene itself evoked the same feelings as any high-budget sci-fi horror film released over the last 40 years. It was, simply put, a remarkable scripted sequence. There would be other high-quality scripted sequences throughout the game, but that one, at least for me, takes the cake, and represents Unreal at its finest. Before we move on, I do want to mention that for this particular episode of the podcast, I ended up playing the original single-player campaign, so that's what my commentary is going to be focused on. Before we move on to the more review-ish section of the discussion, I do just want to take a look at what the back of the box says, because, as you all know, I love looking at the back of the box. I enjoy seeing how companies market their titles and how they describe their titles to prospective consumers. Around 1998, when this came out, we were starting to get a lot of good information. We still didn't have things like YouTube or a lot of gameplay videos available on the internet, but information was a little bit more freely flowing than what we would have seen back in the 80s and early 90s. So if you're going into the store to buy Unreal... My guess is you probably heard about it in some capacity. You might not have, and if not, then the box would have helped with your buying decision. So, for Unreal, the back of the box says, Your senses expanded. The most advanced 3D engine ever created. Spectacular colored lighting and hyper-realistic environmental effects in software and hardware. Destined to bring gaming into the 21st century, Unreal will expand perceptions and set the benchmark for all games to follow. Your fears unleashed. Ruthless artificial intelligence. Unreal enemies are intelligent, cunning masters of their domain. They will track you down anywhere, communicate with each other, call in reinforcements if necessary, and relentlessly pursue you. Your reality altered forever. Designed to be the ultimate multiplayer experience. Hotlink between user-created levels like website links, portals, distinctive skins, identifiable weapons, and more. Multiplayer levels are included. And then there are some screenshots of the game actually on the box. And I've got to say, this is a pretty effective box. It definitely trumps up the 
thought that this is a technological marvel and something that if you didn't want to be left behind, you had to buy and play this game because it is pretty much the state of the art. And it definitely sold it for me. Uh, I did get the game when it originally came out and I didn't actually beat the game back then, but I will say that the box definitely sold me on wanting to purchase the experience. We're now going to talk about more of the specific aspects of the game, and we're going to start by talking about the graphics. For the time that it was released, Unreal was pretty much one of the most graphically advanced titles ever seen. I still remember firing up the game with my 3DFX 3D Accelerator card and marveling at the visuals, with perhaps my favorite part being the colored lighting that permeated the game world, as well as the reflection effects most prominently shown during the opening flyover that the game plays when you first start it up. These graphics were embedded in my brain for the last 20 plus years, and that was just how good they were for the time in which they were released. I remember them vividly. Today, well, it's a little complicated. Unreal still looks good, and it's absolutely a visually impressive title. But it also came out right when three-dimensional worlds were being experimented with, and they were still kind of in that infant stage, so to speak. And because of that, you can kind of see some of the individual geometric pieces that make up either enemies or buildings or just general objects in a level. That doesn't make the graphics bad or subpar, it's just a function of the state of three-dimensional games in 1998. That being said, the lighting and reflection effects still surprisingly remain impressive even today, though I will say that some of those effects feel just a bit over the top. Meaning, it feels like the level designers used an abundance of those effects simply because they could, and not necessarily because they made the most sense for the level they were designing. Overall though, I don't have much to complain about the graphics. It doesn't look modern per se, and though it doesn't have the early 90s retro aesthetic that remains memorable to a large portion of the classic gaming community, I still think it looks pretty darn good, even today. Moving on to the sound and music, the game's soundtrack is pretty much exactly what you would expect from a sci-fi first-person shooter, with a mix of ambient sounds, beat-centric techno-esque songs, and bombastic, almost symphonic tracks, and from my perspective, everything pretty much works and meshes well with the action on the screen. I don't know that I'd call any track particularly memorable, other than maybe the theme that plays when you first start up the game, but honestly, that's kind of okay in this instance. The music wasn't designed to be a centerpiece of the attraction. It was simply there as an enhancement, and in that context, it definitely delivered. Moving on to the narrative and story. You play as Prisoner 849, a person who was being transported to a penal colony when your ship crash lands onto the planet of Nepali. Upon crashing, you come to realize that the peaceful denizens of the planet, the Nali, have become subjugated by a militaristic and vicious species of alien known as the Scarge. The Scarge have imprisoned the people of Nepali with the intent of harvesting Teridium, which is a mineral that's highly desired as a result of its energy-infusing properties. And over the course of the game, you learn more about why the Scars are here and where prior humans who had settled on the planet went. Eventually, you decide to stop simply trying to escape and instead turn your guns on the Scars themselves, culminating with an attack on their alien mothership and queen, all in the hopes of saving the Nali people while, at the same time, trying to escape with your own life. Overall, 
I really enjoyed the narrative elements of the game, and I especially liked how the story was told to the player via in-game bits and pieces as opposed to any sort of broader exposition dump. It was pretty much the perfect amount of story for a 90s-era first-person shooter, and I think the development team pretty much nailed this aspect of the game. Moving on to the playability and controls, Unreal plays pretty much like any modern first-person shooter, which is to say it was released at a time when game designers had begun to figure out how to make first-person shooters more accessible than their truly retro counterparts. So, from an overall control perspective, there's really not that much to say here that you wouldn't expect. You navigate the game world using a combination of keyboard commands and mouse movement to look around and aim, and everything controls-wise feels pretty tight. What I do want to spend some time on, though, is the playability of the game, because I definitely have some thoughts. First of all, I want to talk about the weaponry in the game. In short, I really wasn't that huge of a fan, at all, of the majority of the weapons. I don't know if this was a fault of the weapons themselves, or if it was simply the fact that it didn't feel like enemies really reacted to getting shot until they fell over dead, but there was something missing here. Everything felt pretty underpowered, except for the flat cannon, which, like I said earlier, was my favorite weapon and felt suitably powerful for taking out a bunch of bad guys at close quarters. The other weapons, by contrast, were situationally useful at best, and while they were all effective, they just weren't really all that fun to use. And one of the reasons for that, from my perspective, was the enemy AI, which can best be described as incredibly irritating most of the time. Now, I recognize this might be sacrilegious to say, but I honestly thought that the artificial intelligence in this game just wasn't good at all. A lot of people out there have touted the AI as one of the key features of the game, and there was a ton of positive comments about the fact that the individual who created the Reaper bots for Quake was the person that Epic brought in to code the AI in Unreal. From my perspective, though, the AI was about as artificial as it gets. So let me explain. In most first-person shooters of the time, enemies were effectively cannon fodder. They would chase down the player relentlessly, they wouldn't really be concerned for their own well-being, they just kind of had one primary objective, to kill the player, and the concept of self-preservation or any other kinds of AI thought patterns just were not there. Unreal attempted to change that by giving enemies a set of canned AI routines, like dodging and attempting to use cover to their advantage. In theory... That sounds awesome. But in practice, man, was it frustrating. I can't tell you how many times I would fire a grenade in an enemy only to have them happily jump to the side and completely avoid getting shot. Not just grenades, by the way. Almost any weapon in the game was easily dodged by your enemies, and it got so bad that I legitimately felt like the game was broken at some points. Now, you might be saying, well, that's fine, just don't use the grenades against those enemies. Use something that better counters their movement speed. And yeah, that does work to a degree. But regardless of what I did, I couldn't shake the feeling that the enemies were truly artificially intelligent. Meaning, they weren't smart, they were simply informed as to what my button presses were and the trajectory of my projectiles. It definitely ramped the difficulty up but it did not feel natural to me, and it was probably one of my least favorite parts of the entire experience. I also have to say that, generally speaking, the game is surprisingly long, with 39 levels to get through before you reach the end credits. 
Now, I think we'd all agree that being a long game isn't a bad thing, and I love a good, meaty game that I can sink hours upon hours into. But unlike games whose length served to enhance the gaming experience, Unreal felt long, meaning it kind of got to be a slog to play at certain points. I'm going to assume this is because I honestly didn't like the combat or weapon system all that much, which probably made the whole experience feel less streamlined than it otherwise could have been. Regardless of that reason, though, by the time I reached the midpoint of the game and I realized that I still had hours of gaming left with ridiculously cheap enemies dodging my every move, I definitely became a bit dissuaded. Luckily, though, the last chunk of the game is almost universally excellent, with perhaps the last seven-ish levels in particular feeling much zippier than prior ones. If it wasn't for that last set of levels, I think I would have walked away from Unreal being decidedly underwhelmed. I mean, I loved the beginning of the game, and I already talked about how some segments not long after you start playing are incredibly memorable. The middle part of the game, though, is just, I don't know, it's just slow, chunky, and underwhelming. Luckily, though, the last seven levels redeemed the entire experience, and despite my belief that the middle levels could have been improved on, I do think that overall, the good outweighed the bad here. But it wasn't nearly as much of a runaway as I would have expected. So overall, Unreal kind of felt like a mixed bag to me. The environmental storytelling, the graphics, and the sense of exploration, they all feel amazing. The combat and the overall gunplay, though, feel decidedly less so. It's really tough to balance the two out in my head, because I really, really liked exploring the expansive levels, and even the more confined stages felt great to dive into. That said, I also really didn't like the guns and combat in most of the game. This is just one of those situations where I ended up feeling very differently about two sides of the same game, and it's tough to ultimately and affirmatively say which one prevails. So overall, what is our verdict on Unreal? Well, let me just say, Unreal is undeniably a landmark release in computer gaming, and the technology it introduced to the industry was light years better than what had come before it. That said, I honestly think the game has some issues, primarily as it relates to the gunplay, the lack of real feedback when attacking enemies, and the middle chunk of the game being a bit boring to get through. I am curious how others feel about this one, because I honestly didn't expect to be as down on it as I was and how I felt after playing the game. But at the end of the day, it's just simply how I felt. I was disappointed that it wasn't just a bit better than what it seemed to be. Now, here's the funny thing, though. Regardless of those critiques, I did still have a mostly fun time playing the game. When Unreal is good, like in that scripted lights out sequence I described earlier, it's really good, and it stands as an example of how to properly design an engrossing dramatic first-person shooter. When it stumbles, though, it stumbles pretty hard. Overall, I do believe the game is a worthwhile experience to play, but I would be lying if I said I thought everyone would enjoy it. If it weren't for the last chunk of the game ending things on a high note, I think this would have been in mediocre mention territory, despite the quality of the graphics, the unique scripted moments, and the technology it introduced into the first-person shooter genre. Instead, though, I do believe Unreal warrants consideration as our newest golden oldie. It is not perfect, and it certainly has some rough edges that lead to frustration. But 
it's still something I recommend everyone play at some point in your gaming careers. When you have the opportunity to explore Unreal's world without worrying about the irritating enemies inhabiting it, the game is a joy to behold. And frankly, if Unreal were made into a walking simulator kind of experience, I'd probably enjoy exploring its alien environment and learning about its inhabitants and lore even more than playing the game in its original state. As it stands, though, Unreal's stellar level and graphics design is marred a bit by frustrating AI and underwhelming weapons, but it isn't marred enough to dramatically impact its overall rating. It's not as smooth of an experience as some of the other first-person shooters we've looked at, but regardless, for me, Unreal still stands as our newest addition to our list of golden oldies. was our episode on unreal i hope you all enjoyed listening to it as much as i enjoyed creating it if you'd like to reach out let me know how i'm doing provide feedback comments suggestions or just talk about classic games and technology in general i would love to hear from you and there are a few ways you could reach out i have an email address which is classicgamingtoday at gmail.com i have a twitter account with the handle at classicgamingt and I have a Discord server. The link is in the show notes. Discord is the best way to get in touch with me and the rest of the podcast community. We have a ton of fun out there, so I do highly encourage you all to join. I also want to mention that we do have a Patreon. That is patreon.com slash today. So if you want even more Classic Gaming Today, including an exclusive bi-weekly podcast, patreon.com slash today is the place to get it. Before we sign off for the week, I do want to mention that our next episode is going to be focused on Resident Evil, so feel free to write in if you have any particularly fond or not-so-fond memories of that experience. At the same time, I recognize you're likely listening to this podcast on any number of podcast services, and if you would feel so inclined, it'd be great if you could leave me a review. This is not about bolstering star counts or trying to get a bunch of five-star ratings, though if that happens, awesome, that means we're doing something right. No, what it's really all about is just getting the feedback necessary to make this the best possible podcast that I can. The only way to do that is to get feedback from the community to make sure that we are hitting the mark and not having any significant gaps. So if you don't want to leave a review, that's fine too. Send me a note and let me know how we're doing anyway. I just want to make sure this is the best possible podcast it can be. We'll be back in around a week with our next episode focused on Resident Evil. Until then... Remember, sometimes the games of the past are just as good, if not better, than the games of today. Goodbye, everyone. <laughs>